By the way, Mexico's not paying for his wall either. If he ever tries to get it built, the American taxpayer will pay for it. Oh, somebody should have listened to Hillary Clinton back in 2016. Yep. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right Here I am, stuck in the middle with you I am Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From with Pacifica you. Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on People Powered Radio, KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka, California's KGOE. Up in Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, in Cottage Grove, on KSO, in Eugene, on KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Goldendale, Washington on KVGD, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream for you coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me... From bradblog.com. I say so too, sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Hi, uh, that is a swell f- uh, gal. Swell producer. Producer, <laughs> Desiree Doyen. Hi, Des. Hey. Uh, coming up a, a bit later on today's broadcast, uh, Bernie Sanders shatters all known first day presidential fundraising records. Also, some good news for uh, supporters of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Ed Markey's Green New Deal. And if time allows, (laughs) the profane and kind of remarkable segment that Fox News' Tucker Carlson recorded last week, but decided not to run for some reason. He does uh, not want you to hear that for some for reason. For some reason uh, that we'll uh, we'll hopefully find out a little bit later. Um, it's uh, frankly pretty embarrassing for Tucker and Fox News, so you can look forward to that. Uh, but first up today on on the Twitters, we received some uh, feedback regarding some of our recent coverage of Donald Trump's pretend national emergency to steal military money in order to build his southern border wall and uh, and the reports that some Republicans supposedly were just a, totally against the idea because they're concerned that a Democratic president in the future might do the very same thing in order to get something that he or she could not get through Congress. Sort of waiting for those uh, Republicans who are against the idea to start making any actual noise, but um, in the meantime... On the Twitters, uh, a follower named Porn Valley. Hey, Porn. You know, you know Porn Valley, don't <laughs> I you, do. Des? Yeah. 
he he wrote, uh, Brad, I kind of want Trump to win his national emergency argument because voter caging is a national emergency. Election fraud is a national emergency. Voter suppression is a national emergency. Voter purging is a national emergency. The next Democratic president can fix all that. Well, uh, I take your point, porn, and uh, you're you're probably right, I guess, if this uh, national emergency is allowed to go through, if the courts let it stand, I guess it's... uh, uh, open season for any future president to declare anything to be a national emergency. And you're right. Some of those things you mentioned actually are emergencies from time to time. But uh, in any event, I take the point. But while Donald Trump's pretend national emergency, in fact, uh, meant three days of weekend golf for the president instead of the normal two days, I guess, Uh, Some Americans are indeed already facing an actual emergency on the border, but it's not an invasion from Mexico, as Trump would have you believe falsely. It's actually an invasion by the United States federal government to take away property from landowners on the southern border with Mexico in the Texas Rio Grande Valley, where many of these residents and their families have lived on the banks of that river for generations. And there is also a number of private and public wildlife refuges that are also threatened by uh, the construction of this border wall, which is already underway in some areas. But on that part, at least, these wildlife refuges, there was a bit of good news anyway, at least for some of those areas. The compromise spending bill signed last Friday by Donald Trump to keep the government open includes a special carve-out to spare uh, the National Butterfly Center and other sensitive wildlife areas in the lower Rio Grande Valley from border wall construction. The federal appropriations bill included $1.375 billion in additional funding for pedestrian fencing along 55 miles of border, including along levees that hold back floodwaters on the Rio Grande River. But thanks to diligent efforts from Congress members representing the area, the bill specifically carves out exceptions for the Butterfly Center, the also the La Lomita Mission Chapel, Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge, and Benson Rio Grande Valley State Park, all important conservation and tourism sites along the Texas-Mexico border in Hidalgo County. It also, according to the Rivard Report, a nonprofit media source out of San Antonio, shields those areas from construction funded by previous acts of Congress, such as the 33 miles of wall approved last year that we've been reporting on for some weeks, for which plans uh, for construction are already underway in the area and uh, that had threatened places like the 150-year-old La Lomita Mission Chapel and the 100-acre wildlife refuge at the National Butterfly Center, whose director, Mariana Trevino-Wright, spoke with us on the broadcast last week as bulldozers and other heavy construction equipment were beginning to roll through the property and as U.S. Customs and Border Patrol agents had even broken their gate and replaced its lock with a padlock of their own. According to a motion for a restraining order filed last week in federal court by the center, 
Since July 2017, the National Butterfly Center has been in a legal battle with the federal government over their plans to seize portions of the property for a wall, cutting them and much of the wildlife on the preserve off entirely from the Rio Grande and threatening wildlife caught on the other side of the wall with potential death by flooding. But the bill signed late last week by Donald Trump would prevent funding this year or in prior years from being used to build border barriers at those sensitive areas. That, according to the Office of Democratic U.S. Rep. Henry Cuellar, he was one of 17 Republicans and Democrats in Congress who hammered out the deal and in an attempt to avoid a partial federal government shutdown requiring uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection to reach agreements regarding the design and alignment of barriers with local officials in a number of towns along the border. Cuellar called the bill a, quote, big win for the Rio Grande Valley. Trevino Wright of the National Butterfly Center, however, said that they are moving ahead with their lawsuit, despite whatever allowances and protections may be specified in the new bill telling the Rivard Report that they've, quote, learned that we can't let our guard down. She said, we've learned how really tenuous our standing is as private citizens, as a nonprofit organization, that this administration and this Department of Homeland Security has an agenda, she says, whether that's inflicting maximum trauma on innocent children or confiscating private property without due process. She was right, it seems, to keep her guard up in that those carve-outs for the Butterfly Center and the other places came before Donald Trump subsequently issued his emergency declaration to take money from military projects to use for more of his promised border wall construction. We checked in with Trevino Wright over the weekend after that emergency declaration. She sent us the following statement, quote, Apparently the administration does not believe funds taken from the Department of Defense and other places for the state of emergency carry the same restrictions as those appropriated by Congress. For this reason, we expect wall. She said, in fact, we expect the equipment already at work near us will just roll right over and through us. Also, the carve-out in the 2019 bill is a one-time thing, she notes. It means six months from now, we're back on the chopping block when Congress begins negotiating for 2020 appropriations and legislation. So we have not been spared, she says. We were given a temporary stay of execution. But while some, like the Butterfly Center, may have a temporary reprieve for now, maybe, other private property owners in the area decidedly do not. While 16 states have now sued to block Trump's national emergency declaration as not an actual emergency at all, many private landowners in the area must now contend with not only that, but also last year's appropriation for 33 miles of new fencing and the additional 55 miles allocated from this year's compromise spending bill. Last Friday, the nonprofit advocacy group Public Citizen filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of the Frontera Audubon Society and three landowners in South Texas who were told by the government that it would seek to build a border wall on their properties if money was available in 2019. 
They seek to block Donald Trump's national emergency declaration, urging the court to find that Trump exceeded his constitutional authority and his authority under the National Emergencies Act. They hope to bar Trump and the U.S. Department of Defense from using the declaration and funds appropriated for other purposes to build a border wall. The Frontera Audubon Society is headquartered on a 15-acre nature preserve in Westlaco, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley. In addition to the Frontera Audubon Society, the plaintiffs in the suit include three private citizens whose families have lived on the edge of the Rio Grande River for generations, but whose whose, uh, property now, according to the federal complaint from Public Citizen, would now be bisected by a huge border wall cutting through their backyards. And in uh, in one plaintiff's case, the wall would be built literally feet away from her home on property that has been in her family for at least five generations. Joining us now to detail this complaint, which uh, describes the federal government's construction and intrusion on private lands as, quote, an imminent invasion of plaintiffs' privacy and the quiet enjoyment of their land, both during construction and after, is Allison Zeev, General Counsel for Public Citizen, where she focuses on issues of public health, consumer safety, open government, federal preemption, the First Amendment, and more, including as the director of Public Citizen's Supreme Court Assistance Project, where she has argued some five cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Allison Zeev, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. I uh, let me start with the uh, Frontier. Uh, I'm sorry, Frontera Audubon Society plaintiff. Uh, their property was not part of the carve out that I mentioned. That uh, at least under the uh, compromise legislation, uh, if not the National Emergency Declaration, was supposed to be protected in the new bill from from border construction. Why was that uh, not included in the carve out? To your knowledge, Frontera Audubon, their 15 acre nature preserve is not right on the border, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be built in their property. But their concern on behalf of the organization and their members is the effect of the border wall in the Rio Grande Valley on the wildlife and native habitats that is sort of why the organization exists and mm-hmm. what their members enjoy. And so uh, they're not directly affected, uh, affected here, or, or is the argument that they are and that that gives them standing because of the concerns of their members? The latter. They are, they are directly affected, not in their property, mm-hmm. um, but because they're avid bird watchers and nature enthusiasts, um, the organization has advocated for the creation of a wildlife corridor around, uh, along uh, 250 miles of the Rio Grande River, and the members use the area, not just the property owned by Frontera Audubon, but the area in general is used by uh, bird watchers and, mm-hmm. and members of Frontera uh, because the wildlife is not sedentary. So it, the birds and other wildlife are moving throughout that whole wildlife corridor, mm-hmm. and they primarily... Um, are at near the river mm-hmm. because uh, the birds in particular and wildlife in general um, mm-hmm. want to be near water, and the birds also want foliage. So the river is a prime location for the birds and therefore for bird watchers. Gotcha. Um, but once the wall is built, um, not only will it impede migration of the 
uh, other forms of wildlife, but the for the bird watchers, it'll sort of be devastating because they won't be able to get to where the birds are. Gotcha. Now, uh, tell me about the, as of course, it's not just wildlife that likes to be near the river. Tell me about the uh, the three private plaintiffs that are named in your in your suit, uh, uh, Nada Alvarez, uh, Lionel Romeo Alvarez, and Yvette Gaetan. Uh, what are their concerns and, and their claims here? Uh, those three people all live in Star County, uh, right on the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned in your introduction the situation of Ms. Alvarez, who, be- because her the back of her house is 200 feet from the river, mm-hmm. and the government has told her that they are going to have a 100-foot setback, including a 25-foot wide road. So she, instead of looking out over her land and a river, when she looks out her back door, she's going to see a a big wall right up against her. Uh, So uh, her use and enjoyment of her land is going to be just just significantly um, affected. Mm -hmm. Um, Her father, uh, Leonel Alvarez, Mm -hmm. uh, he's the owner of another parcel right next door, that's been in their property, all well, the whole area is as well has been in their um, land for five generations. Mm. Um, the larger tract uh, that he owns is where the family gets together, where the kids play, where they have barbecues and they hunt, and that's a six-acre piece that's right on the river um, that's just going to be it's not going to be a place for them to use and enjoy once there's a large wall going through it. Um, and, uh, and Yvette Gaetan also is is fairly close. She's 400 feet from the river. They project building about 200 feet from her house, so she's in a very similar situation mm-hmm. to the others. Do, do the concerns of those plaint- your plaintiffs here, do, do they involve the specifically the National Emergency Declaration or also the regular old congressionally adopted and presidentially signed uh, spending bills that I mentioned that in, in total would add, uh, by my calculations, about 90 miles of new walling in South Texas? Are, are, are they concerned about uh, both of those matters or specifically the National Emergency Declaration? Both. The, the way it was described to them in the letters they received from CBP, both Customs and Border Patrol, both last year and in January, um, were specifically concerned about the building of a wall um, pursuant to this so-called emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, they, have, they haven't been informed since the filing last week about what the government's going to do. We don't think that they would be targeted by the money appropriated by Congress for fencing. Um, but whichever one it was, they don't really, we don't want to sit back and find mm-hmm. out, but rather, you know, go on the offense and, and challenge the government's action. And and how does your case uh, on behalf of these plaintiffs differ? And I don't know if you've had the chance to look at it yet, but uh, there was one filed, as I mentioned, by 16 states on Monday also challenging uh, Donald Trump's emergency declaration. Uh, those were uh, state attorneys general uh, who, who filed those uh, th- that complaint, presumably on behalf of the state. How, how is your case different from theirs? 
Well, the the legal theories challenging the unlawfulness and unconstitutionality of the president's action is the same in our case and in the state's case. Mm-hmm. The theory of injury is different. Mm. Um, and the states are concerned about money that they're going to be losing that's going to be diverted to the wall, for example. Um, they're concerned about environmental impact on uh, some of the states. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you get to the basis for the, the legal basis for the challenge, it's very similar. Well, on that legal basis, of course, Trump's defenders are claiming that his emergency declaration action is, in fact, constitutional. Uh, it doesn't violate separation of powers because it is based on a statute that was adopted by Congress, the National Emergencies Act, uh, which allows for such declarations by the executive. Trump uh, does, in fact, seem to be claiming authority under under that act. And so uh, you're, I'm interested in your response to that argument. And isn't your complaint here really with Congress uh, that delegated this kind of unchecked authority to the president? Um, well, actually, Congress drafted this statute to cut back on president's um, assertions of broad authority. The statute was passed uh, in 1974 because of concern about the uh, president's proclamation in 1950 and and thereafter Mm -hmm. that sustained the U.S. involvement in Vietnam and Cambodia. And the, the purpose and history of the act are quite clear that what Congress thought it was doing was limiting presidential power to declare emergencies um, so that the president could use emergency power only when an emergency actually existed. And Congress was sort of quite um, openly concerned about separation of powers issues, the same ones that we rely on in our case, um, and the sort of risk that a president who had unlimited power to declare emergencies uh, was, was sort of a, a threat to our constitutional democracy. So the notion that that statute gives the president to just invoke the magic words national emergency whenever he and Congress can't resolve a dispute through Mm -hmm. the legislative process is just really um, belied by by the history of that statute. And I think the words itself as well, the statute says, I think I have it here. The statute says, with respect to acts of Congress authorizing the exercise during the period of a national emergency of any special or extraordinary power, the president is authorized to declare such national emergency. So the way it's written, giving the president power to declare such national emergency Mm -hmm. during the period of an emergency, it assumes there's an emergency. (laughs) If there is no emergency, the president can't declare one. And, and so what it really comes down to, there is no emergency. Everybody knows that. The arguments that we'll hear on the other side, it's not really that they think there's an emergency. It's that they think the president can do whatever he wants. And that's just not our constitutional system. Well, I guess the argument could be made. It does seem absurd that we are at this point, but I guess the uh, National Emergencies Act doesn't actually define what an emergency is or isn't. Uh, Has the Supreme Court ever been called upon to determine what an actual emergency is or isn't? Because it seems like that's what it's going to come down to, Allison. 
Well, I haven't found a case where the Supreme Court defined the word emergency, but I think that if I, you know, called up my husband and said, you got to come home, there's an emergency, he wouldn't say, what do you mean by emergency? <laughs> right? It's a, it's a word in the English language. Words have meaning, and it's not an ambiguous word. It's not, right, so it conveys urgency, some unforeseen thing that needs to be taken care of right away. It doesn't convey a long-standing political dispute that the president himself last week admitted he didn't he didn't really need to do through this through this extraordinary mechanism. Yeah, when he said he he could have waited, but he wanted to do it faster. Uh, Allison has has uh, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol have they already surveyed your plaintiffs' property and and or notified them about plans to do so and. Uh, setting aside for a moment this particular suit, what rights do they? What rights do they actually have here uh, under either a federal eminent domain, which allows the government to seize property for a theoretically legitimate government interest, or, or now under the authority of this national emergency declaration, do they have any actual rights uh, to to challenge those authorities? Uh, on your first question, uh, CBP has asked to come on their land and has um, asked for permission to survey and do a site assessment. Um, and at least two of the clients declined that, and the CBP said that they would be filing a uh, declaration of taking against them mm-hmm. in U.S. District Court in Texas, uh, which they haven't done. Um, that was all before the bill was signed and the emergency declaration. Mm. Um, it was all in anticipation of funding being appropriated or mm-hmm. otherwise available this fiscal year. Uh, they haven't heard from CBP since then. If CBP proceeds to try to condemn their land so as to take 150 feet from each of them to build a wall, um, then there is a process to challenge that in in court after CBP files the proceeding in district court. Um, it's a process that is favorable to the government. Mm-hmm. Um, government is allowed to take people's property for a public purpose if they pay just compensation. Uh, I think it's... The public purpose here is questionable, but it's obviously hard to argue about that. And um, the they haven't offered them money at this mm-hmm. time. So essentially, uh, it, w- once or if it's determined that the government uh, can, in fact, take this land, the, the, the only legal issue thereafter is really squabbles about what price uh, should be. I don't mean to minimize it by calling them squabbles, but yeah. uh, legal fights about what the price should be uh, that ultimately the government uh, needs to pay in order to compensate the landowners. They don't have a lot of rights once this process is started. Is, is that correct? We, we interviewed uh, Ricky Garza, the Texas Civil Rights Project, a few weeks ago. Uh, ago. He's been working to notify landowners of their rights. He told us, in fact, there really aren't all that many once uh, the eminent domain process moves forward. Uh, that's right. If it's a proper taking, mm-hmm. then the question is compensation. And 
Yep. <laughs> but the fight about what a proper taking is, I guess, is what's underway now. Um, so That's what right. what is the, the the status of this case right now? Um, when, where, I guess, and when will this be heard? I, I know you probably saw Trump's weird uh, Rose Garden press conference where he famously uh, in a bizarre sort of sing-song monologue said he expected to lose in federal courts and win at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he was referring uh, generally to losing in the more liberal Ninth Circuit Court in California, uh, where those 16 states have now filed. But uh, your court, your case, I guess, would be heard in the much more conservative uh, Seventh Circuit Court. Is that correct? No, we filed in D.C. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, our, we could have filed in Texas or D.C. given the location of the parties, and we filed in D.C. where we're located. Um, and also, I should mention that the Center for Biological Diversity has now also filed in D.C. and mm. been assigned to the same judge. Mm -hmm. So Trump's little sing-song may or may not be true, but there'll be <laughs> two courts. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, he hasn't lost cases just in the Ninth Circuit over the past two years. Right. Um, the administration has lost, really has a, a quite bad uh, record, win-loss record. Yep on litigation about actions that he and the federal agencies have done in violation of law over the past two years. Mm -hmm. um, so our case will go up to the D.C. Circuit, as the and the California case will go up to the Ninth Circuit, and we'll see from there. Gotcha. And is a uh, public citizen, as far as you know, uh, if... Well, either way, I guess if you do lose or win, is this? Uh, do, do you see this as a case that will likely make its way all the way to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court one way or the other? Well, I can't imagine whoever loses at the appellate level wouldn't try to take it up to the Supreme Court, and you know, the Supreme Court doesn't take every case, so we'll see what they decide. I'm confident that if any of the plaintiffs win in any appellate court, the Supreme Court would take the case. If the appellate courts ruled against the plaintiffs, I don't know what the Supreme Court would do. And then all we have to worry about at the U.S. Supreme Court is uh, the stolen, uh, Donald Trump's stolen majority, frankly, on that court. That's me speaking, not Allison Zeev. Uh, Allison M. Zeev is public citizen's counsel uh, for the plaintiffs in this case. She's also general counsel for public citizen, the nonprofit consumer advocacy organization. Uh, you can find the suit. We will link to it over at... Uh, citizen.org and you can and should follow Public Citizen on the Twitters at public underscore citizen. Allison Zeev, really appreciate you joining us today. Good luck with the uh, case and hope you don't mind if we give you a shout uh, as this thing rolls forward. Thank you so much. You bet. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break here. Oh, and wait, you but you know, yeah. I just want to say one quick Go thing. Ahead. At the very end, I noticed that she said she is confident that if the plaintiffs win, if her clients win this case, yeah. that the Supreme Court will definitely take it. But if they uh, lose the case, well, maybe yeah. the Supreme Court will let that stand. Yeah, I don't think these so-called conservatives on the Supreme Court will let that Go. Uh, you're probably right on that. Uh, good observation, Des. All right, let's take a quick break here, and we will come back with some electoral politics, including some good news for uh, Bernie fans and maybe for you, Desi Doyen, uh -huh. uh, on the Green New Deal uh, and that segment of Fox News's Tucker Carlson show that you were not supposed to hear. You will hear it right here on the broadcast. All that's coming up straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. 
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Billy Joel's uh, Close to the Borderline. <laughs> yes. Well played, Des. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's run some numbers, shall we? We noted on yesterday's uh, Bradcast that after Bernie Sanders announced his 2020 run for president on Tuesday, his campaign took in a record $1 million in small donations in just the first three and a half hours after the uh, announcement on Vermont Public Radio and then uh, and then CBS this morning, shattering the previous first day record this year by uh, California Senator Kamala Harris. Well, now we've got some updated numbers for the independent Vermont senator's new campaign for the uh, for the Democratic 2020 primary uh, nomination, which pretty much by themselves thrust him into the front runners slot, I think, at least if we're just going by uh, by money raised here. Sanders raised just short of six million dollars. Wow. From 225,000 donors in his first 24 hours as a presidential candidate. That, according to his campaign this morning, and that far surpasses the first day totals brought in by any of his 2020 rivals so far. The next largest uh, announced total came from Kamala Harris. Her campaign said she received uh, or she raised one and a half million dollars from 38,000 donors in the 24 hours after her announcement, and that got her. A lot of coverage at the time, if you'll recall, because it frankly, it was a big haul and the media began regarding her as a front runner because of it. Now, we'll have to see if uh, Bernie Sanders receives the same treatment from the corporate media. But uh, Kamala Harris, she went on to get an hour of airtime on CNN for a whole town hall. Which I don't think any of the other candidates had received at that point. <laughs> Except for the non-declared billionaire candidate, Howard Schultz. Well, yeah, but yeah. He, he, no, he got it after uh, after she went on. Yes. Instead of other Democrats getting an hour, they uh, CNN gave that hour to uh, Howard Schultz, who, who may run as an independent, but he has zero political experience, pretty much zero policy ideas. But as you note, he does have... He's a billionaire. He's got billions of dollars. So I guess that qualifies him to get a free uh, airtime hour on of air CNN. Time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, to yeah, it was. It's kind of crazy. Uh, meanwhile, um, Minnesota Senator Amy, Amy Klobuchar 
Uh, she reported raising $1 million in the 48 hours after launching her campaign uh, this month. That raised a lot of eyebrows at the time for those who thought uh, that she might not have enough name recognition to stand out in this very crowded field so far. So Klobuchar did very well with $1 million in 48 hours. Uh, Harris did better with uh, $1.5 million in 24 hours. But Bernie Sanders raised six million dollars. Now, by uh, 10 after 8, 8, 10 p.m. Eastern time last night, according to AP, Sanders had raised by that point more than four million dollars in the 12 hours since his announcement. And as that news came in, David Schuster from I-24 News noted on Twitter that that amount, that those $4 million was, quote, the largest single-day donation total in U.S. presidential campaign history. Wow. Ever. And uh, he would then go on to raise another $2 million. Uh, so he shattered, uh, completely shattered the one-day uh, total for uh, U.S. presidential campaign history. Now, according to the Sanders camp this morning, the average donation to his new campaign was just below $27, which <laughs> is about the same as he received uh, in his last run. We noted that uh, Kamal Harris's then eye-popping numbers included an average donation of $37 in her case. So uh, comparable in that it, uh, it, you know, comes from mostly small donors. That is good news for both of them, as Cam Joseph notes over at TPM today, that uh, that low total means that Sanders and Harris can now continue to return to those same donors for more money in the future, unlike candidates who rely on large donations, whose donors get uh, maxed out. They hit the legal caps on how much they can give. So um, they both, Sanders and Harris in this case, have a long way to go uh, and a lot more money that they will be able to raise from these very same supporters. Sanders campaign says that uh, donors have already pledged 600000 in monthly recurring donations giving the Sanders campaign a steady stream of support from now through the primaries. So I don't yet know what to make of all of this. I'm still somewhat troubled uh, that so much of this is about, you know, measuring uh, popularity by how much money they can raise uh, rather than ideas per se. But with uh, small donors and a lot of them, it is at least uh, indicative that these uh, candidates, that their actual policies are are popular. Yes. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the networks treat uh, Sanders as a front runner now. Uh, however, uh, the way they did with uh, Harris and, and even a bit with Klobuchar uh, after they were surprised by how well she did. I suspect there's a lot of uh, Bernie folks out there who will be watching that very closely. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, now, obviously, we still need to get money out of politics, but I guess for now that's how they're going. The corporate media is going to measure it. Well, uh, in mean, in the meantime, as far as uh, popularity amongst the people um, and uh, speaking of Bernie and the rest of the 2020 candidates who have pretty much all uh, endorsed the proposal for a Green New Deal introduced last last week. Was it just last week? It was a little over 10 days, okay. about 10 days ago uh, by uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey to get a 100 percent net zero uh, carbon uh, electricity in the next 10 years and create millions of new jobs at the same time to do it. 
this uh, proposal, of course, has been decried by many in the media as pie in the sky. Well, the people sure seem to like the plan. The the voters, you remember them. Uh, and frankly, of all political persuasions here, in fact. Oh, no, don't tell Fox News. Uh, actually, I suspect Fox News already knows, which is why they are falling over themselves to demonize to it as much slime as possible. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, to I mean, mischaracterize, to lie yep. about it, to spread all kinds of BS propaganda about it yep. everywhere they can, and they have a lot of that. Uh, a lot of that to spread yes. over at Fox News, and we'll get to some of that in the in the next segment here. I hope. Uh, anyway, uh, there have been critics on the on the right and the left, frankly, who have uh, called this proposal politically infeasible. Uh, nonetheless, as Business Insider notes, the, the uh, resolution has quickly picked up steam. The Green New Deal has received uh, at least nine Senate sponsors, more than 60 House sponsors, uh, and every uh, Senate Democrat who has declared a run for president, I think, in 2020 has endorsed it. But uh, according to a new Business Insider poll, the supporters here may have a very strong case. The uh, Business Insider poll found that a solid majority of Americans agreed, first, with scientific consensus around climate change. Des, you've talked about this on the Green News Report. Yes. Uh, nearly 62 percent of those polled said the Earth was warming as a result of human activities, including burning fossil fuels, uh, which is the scientific consensus. So 62 uh, percent are, are, are on board there. Now, the Green New Deal resolution broadly calls for the U.S. to address climate change through this 10 year mobilization to make the U.S. economy carbon neutral. And um, a plurality of respondents, 43.7 percent, agreed with the Green New Deal proposal as a whole. And just 14.7 percent disagreed with it. So a huge plurality there in support of the Green New Deal as a whole. But what uh, Business Insider did is they went through piece by piece and looked at each of the parts of the proposal. And in that case, each part of the proposal is incredibly popular, uh, over 80 percent in pretty much every case. Here's some examples. 87.6 percent of respondents said it was somewhat very or extremely important that the federal government invest in infrastructure designed to build resilience against climate change related disasters. Eighty seven point six percent. That's a huge number. Just over 87 percent of respondents uh, said it was somewhat very or extremely important that the U.S. meet 100 percent of its power demands through renewable or zero emission energy sources. 87% are on board with this. 86% of those polled said it was important that the federal government enact uh, policies aimed at achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions. That would mean no added carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Support for improving the energy efficiency of new and existing buildings was particularly high. Almost 90 percent agreed with that. Wow. So this is piece by piece every element of the Green New Deal. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what we keep talking about. The people get it. The people understand pollution is bad. Climate change is bad going to require all of us to work together to fix it. Eighty seven and a half percent say it's important that both manufacturing and agricultural businesses and industries be required 
to be as emissions-free as technologically feasible. That's the language that the plan calls for. Uh, It calls for major investment in energy-efficient transportation. That was also popular, 87.6% of those polls, saying it was important that the government invest directly in a high-speed rail system, zero-emission vehicle infrastructure, and clean public transit. And a big majority of respondents supported a broad call for a much stronger social safety net, which is also in the Green New Deal, with 78% saying a federal jobs guarantee was important. 78%. approved with the government providing all Americans with high-quality health care, affordable housing, economic security, healthy and affordable food, and a clean environment. So these are wildly popular ideas when you hear that they can't be done, that the people don't want them, that Fox News and the Republicans are freaking out, pretending this is all a terrible idea. Well, I guess you should already know that Fox News and the Republicans are lying to you. This is wildly popular across all demographics, all political parties. So no wonder Fox News is freaking out about the Green New Deal. Speaking of Fox News freaking out, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with Tucker Carlson and the segment he recorded last week but did not want you to hear. If you have small children in the room or in the car, you may want to cover their ears. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. But there's no sound that no one knows. What does the fuck say? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A week or so ago, we played some clips from the World Economic Forum conference uh, in Davos, Switzerland, in which uh, there was an historian there on one of the panels uh, who called out all of the millionaires and billionaires that attend this conference for wringing their hands about poverty around the world and how are they going to help all of those poor people without speaking to what would really make the difference uh, in the widening, obscene wealth gap around the world uh, and, of course, here in the U.S., which would be raising taxes on those millionaires and billionaires and clawing back money that uh, many of these rich folks hide offshore in order to avoid paying taxes on it at all. Here's a a, a bit of historian Rutger Bregman's shocking remarks uh, to the millionaires and billionaires at the Davos conference uh, as a reminder. I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water. I mean, ten, 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes. Mm-hmm. Taxes, taxes, all the rest is bullshit, in, in my opinion. Well, uh, apparently Fox News' Tucker Carlson thought it was great how Bregman was taking it to all of those wealthy liberals, I guess, who uh, who show up at Davos. And 
Tucker Carlson invited Bregman on his show last week to talk about it in a pre-recorded interview that did not go well for Tucker. It went so poorly, in fact, that Carlson uh, never aired this interview at all on his show, uh, which ended with Carlson swearing at Bregman. But Bregman did release the interview to Now This News, which released it today. Bregman... um, Uh, Being interviewed here from a a remote satellite studio somewhere in Europe, I I think, uh, he apparently recorded this interview on his end, which means the quality is kind of weird here with Bregman in this uh, remote studio. And then you'll hear Tucker's side of the interview through a monitor that was playing, I guess, in the room. Uh, it, It sounds like Tucker is on the phone here. We tried to clean it up a little bit for air, so it's understandable, uh, both the sound quality and, I guess, the language. Things start well enough here, but then quickly fall off the rails. Tucker's intro ends with um, a Bregman's comment about the, that uh, the firefighting convention where nobody's willing to talk about water. And it goes fairly quickly downhill from there uh, for poor Tucker and Fox News anyway. We, so we pick this up as Carlson is praising the historian's remarks at the conference uh, and calling them, uh, quote, maybe the great greatest moment in Davos history. And again, excuse the weird sound quality here because of the way this was recorded on Bregman's side. Sure, I'm not an expert on Davos history, but it is a bit hypocritical, isn't it? very happy with me but I'm just just I think a a random Dutch historian who's basically saying whatever on around the globe is thinking you know the vast majority of Americans for years and years now according to the polls uh, including Fox News viewers and including Republicans are in favor of higher taxes on the rich you know higher inheritance taxes higher top marginal tax rates uh, higher wealth taxes it's all really mainstream but no one's saying that at Davos, just as no one's saying it on Fox News, right? And I think the, the, the explanation for that is quite simple, is that most of the people in Davos, but also here on this channel, have been bought by the billionaire class, you know? You're not meant to say these things. So I just went there and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to say it, just as I'm saying it right here on this channel. Well, what was interesting, I thought, about what you said was that you noted something, I mean, many people have called for higher taxes. Well, not on this channel, is it? I mean, almost all of the pundits on this channel for years have been against higher taxes, right? Even though the, the vast majority of Americans is in favor of it. I mean, I would, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it would be interesting to know how many hours of Fox you've watched, but I'm interested in what you said about mm-hmm. tax avoidance. So yeah. you, just because someone faces a specific tax rate does not mean that person pays that Certain that this class of people pays what they're supposed to pay. 
Well, it's about multiple things. So we should really crack down on tax paradises and on tax avoidance. That's a major issue. But it's also about having higher taxes. So in the 1950s, for example, in the 1960s, in the golden age of capitalism, as historians called it, we had top marginal tax rate for the very rich uh, of about, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent actually under under Eisenhower, the Republican president. And this was also, you know, one of the best periods in American history. Same same is true for the UK and, and the rest of Europe. Um, so as a historian, for me, it's all not, you know, it's it's really not rocket science. We should go just go back to to simple and straightforward solutions from the from the past. Right. But this country was sustained. And since you're a historian, I guess you would know this sustained mm. by an industrial economy at the time that was broad and deep. That, mm -hmm. that created a middle class, that doesn't exist anymore. So it's an entirely different economy. I wish it did exist. Oh, well, but that's not so that's not really an issue. Would I mean, work the same way with an entirely different economy? Well, I, th I think it would. I mean, uh, America is still pretty much the most powerful country in the world, right? So um, if it if it really would want to, it could easily crack down on uh, on tax paradises. But the thing is, I mean, you guys have brought into power a president that doesn't even want to show its own tax returns. Uh, I mean, who knows how many billions he has hidden in the Cayman Islands or in Bermuda. Um, so I think the issue really is, is, is one of corruption and of people being bribed and of not being, you know, not talking about the real issues. Uh, what the family, you know, what the Murdochs basically want you to do is to scapegoat immigrants instead of talking about tax avoidance. So I'm, I'm glad you're now finally raising the issue. But that's what been been happening for the past couple of years. Uh-huh. And I'm taking, I'm taking orders from the Murdochs? Is that what you're saying? No, I mean, it doesn't work that directly. But I mean, you've been part of the Cato Institute, right? You're, you've been a senior fellow there for well, years. You've been, wait, you've wait, been wait, taking wait, their wait, dirty wait, money. Wait, wait, They're funded by cock billionaires, you know? Wait, why don't you tell me how it does work? Well, it works by you taking their dirty money. It's as easy as that. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. And I'm glad you now finally jumped the bandwagon, you know, of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. But you're not, you're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem, actually. AOC, wait, but can I just say, and It's true, right? It's true, right, that all the, all the anchors, all the anchors on Fox, <laughs> they're all millionaires. How is this possible? Well, it's very easy. You're just not talking about certain things. It doesn't even, Fox doesn't even play where you are. It doesn't play where you are. <laughs> well, have you heard of the internet? <laughs> I can watch things whatever I want, you know? I have, actually. I, I, I can't say I'm a great fan of your show, but I do my homework when you invite me on your show. So... I mean, you're probably not going to air this, uh, but I went to Davos <laughs> to speak truth to power, and I'm doing exactly the same thing right now. You might not like it, but you're a millionaire funded by billionaires, and that's the reason why you're not talking about these issues. But I am talking about this issue. Yeah, only now. Come on, you jumped the bandwagon. You're all like, oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's not very convincing, <laughs> to be honest. You. Why don't you go f yourself, you <laughs> tiny brain, and I hope this gets picked up, because <laughs> you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too f annoying for me. Uh, you can't handle the criticism, can you? <laughs>
So that was that was Rutger. Wow, huh? Yeah. Wow, that went off the rails quickly. Rutger Bregman, historian with uh, Tucker Carlson. Uh, for some reason, Tucker uh, and Fox never aired that interview. Yeah, they acted like it never existed. I guess there's a reason why uh, Tucker Carlson and Bill O'Reilly and those guys don't like uh, doing live interviews <laughs> on their shows. Uh, and and that would explain it right there. Bregman, for his part, has said he chose to release that video because, quote, uh, I think we should keep talking about the corrupting influence of money in politics. It also shows how angry elites can get if you do that. He said, I stand behind what I said, but there's one thing I should have done better. He said, when Carlson asked me how he's being influenced by big business and tax avoiding billionaires, he says he should have quoted Noam Chomsky saying years ago when he was asked a similar question, Chomsky replied, I'm sure you believe everything that you're saying, but what I'm saying is that if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. Hmm. That's how Tucker got the job, ain't it? Yep. Uh, anyway, thought I'd share that for you with you because uh, Fox News apparently didn't want you to hear it. So if they don't want you to hear it, then I guess we do. <laughs> And you have. Uh, all right, we got to get out. Uh, thank you very much, uh, our producer, Desi Doyen. To my guest today, Allison Zeev of Public Citizen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com you can uh, also respond and follow and share everything that we do here on the facebooks and the twitters at the brad blog and as ever my thanks to those of you who have uh, recently stopped by bradblog.com slash donate we don't have the murdoch money to keep us on the air here we have only you bradblog.com slash donate where we recently celebrated bradblog.com's 15th anniversary and this week are celebrating the green news reports 10th anniversary yep on your public airwaves all thanks to you all right that's it until we meet again tomorrow, I hope. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 